Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. At the age of 87, Claude Van Lingen has had a long career as an artist and is still doing as much as he is able to create work every day. He has, since he was a child, sought to learn about and practice art and as an adult has additionally spent many years teaching young artists and giving back. Recently, he was awarded Solo Exhibition of the Year by the Austin Critics Table following a career retrospective at Colab Projects in 2017. His work often looks at the passage of time and addresses natural disasters that have been exacerbated by the impact of man on the planet. I love how dedicated Claude is to the Austin art community. You will often see him out at art openings, and he does take a serious look at the work presented and researches and contemplates its meaning. It was an honor to interview him, and it's wonderful to know an artist so passionate about his craft and the issues that are important to him. Here's Claude. Okay, Claude. Well, thanks for being on my podcast. You're most welcome, <laughs> Scott. I really appreciate your time. Uh, first, I'll say that you know the typical format of my interviews. I'll start by kind of exploring a person's upbringing and life, mm-hmm. um, and kind of a timeline. But I think Colab, in conjunction with your retrospective last year, did a fantastic job. And there's like a 45 minute video with photos of you know, people and your work that I think covers that much more thoroughly than we ever could. So I think that we probably will just, uh, I'll refer people to that video who want to learn more about your timeline. And I figured we could just get right to talking about your work and, and especially I'm interested in your perceptual studies class that you taught. So I thought maybe I'd start by reading your Artist statement on your website, just to kind of get us started. All right, go ahead. Thousand years from now, perspective time has been the central concept driving my work since 1978. The Thousand Years From Now series reflects my deep concern for the environmental, political, and social well-being of the world in which we live. This concept has been explored by writing dates, lists of names, figurative and non-figurative painting, and or photographs, combined with TV sets, and mirrors, as well as performances. They consider the layering of the physical, conscious, and subconscious experiences we have as individuals and as a global collective. In other words, this layering encapsulates the events, emotions, and conditions that link the past, the ever-changing present, and the unknown anticipated future into the inextricable whole. Each work is created using a medium and process most appropriate to communicating the situation to be portrayed. At times, this entails the use of charcoal, flame, water, and debris collected from a particular disaster site. What does that make you think of, if anything? Or does that all feel true still? Oh, yes. It's still basically true, yeah, definitely. Where do you think you get your deep concern for the world and kind of how you want to address issues with your work? Um, it comes from, you know, just being involved and thinking about the world coming from South Africa and the apartheid situation Mm -hmm. there. That was actually 
one of the reasons I left the country. Yeah. I was having trouble at the art school. They didn't like what I was doing. And the headmaster and quite a few of the teachers, well, the head of the school, uh, the chairman got me to do menial jobs and stuff, and the, they gave me such a hard time. Mm. So that was another reason I left the country. Yeah. Yep. They didn't like what I, the, that perceptual studies class. They didn't like the fact that people were thinking outside the box and weren't doing the uh, sort of academic things that had been done for centuries, you know. Why do you think that threatened them so much? I mean, what were they, uh, what, it, what it were was, they afraid of? It was of? just their background, you know, and uh, being narrow-minded, highly narrow-minded about what was happening. They didn't even look at the contemporary art world. Yeah, and I know that you, you're definitely a proponent of people. Well, you had talked about in the book that you're writing about the philosophy and zeitgeist of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about this current time, and how do you see people, artists, kind of developing their ideas in new ways? Well, after all that's happened in the past, we've reached a point where everybody is doing what for themselves. Now, this goes back to the uh, revolution, the French Revolution, mm-hmm. and the American revolutions, in which royalty was overthrown, mm-hmm. and the church lost its uh, power, and slowly the individual became more and more important. Yeah. So that's where you get impressionism coming from, and then people thinking about outside the box again, post-impressionism, and then, you know, expressionism, cubism, you name it. And so every, every sort of generation, within the context of the times they were living in, developed their own ideas. Now today, and people worked as a group very often, you know, that influenced a lot, and a lot of people sort of copied these ideas for a while, and then the next movement came in and the people copied that. Now today, the way I see it is, if you look at the really good artists today, they're all doing different things. They're not working in a fixed style. Yeah. They're working in something they've discovered for themselves. And uh, they've found the most appropriate means to communicate that idea, whether it's Tracy Emin using a bed on which there are condoms mm-hmm. and all sorts of detritus from her past life and sexual activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you name it, using whatever it calls for to do that work. And that's where the, the adventurous artists today go and they, they don't work within a fixed style. And that's the whole development of how they, that came about. Do you think a lot of artists today are just playing it too safe? If I look at a lot of the stuff around, you know, um, and especially in certain galleries, uh, people are still repeating what had been done for, for ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a few people who are doing uh, their own personal work, and it really, you know, you can see it, it strikes. And it, that, that very often disturbs people. Mm-hmm. They don't like it, you know, what the blazes is this about, you know. And uh, it would be the same reaction that uh, the Impressionists or the Cubists or these people had uh, with, the, you know, the general public not understanding what they were doing and not liking it and yeah. saying it's junk and any idiot can do that. So that's what it's about. That reminds me a lot of a conversation I had with Ron Barry with Fusebox. Um, oh, yeah. And he was talking about how he tries not to judge work on whether he can relate to it or not. Mm-hmm. He likes to be challenged. And uh, Yeah. And then the idea also, if you don't understand the work, uh, just don't uh, nix it as such. Yeah. But uh, try and find out what the artist is trying to do, what the artist is trying to say, um, and then look at the means that they've communicated it. And in that way, you can discover it. But you have to do your research because it's not... I mean, if you look at the Renaissance paintings of Christ, say, on the cross, Mm -hmm. and you knew nothing about the Christian religion, 
you'd say, what the hell's that guy doing up there nailed to the cross? You know, yeah. you wouldn't know. You'd have to do your research to find out. And today it's the same thing with, with, uh, with individual artists. Yeah, I almost feel like, and maybe this is just a cliche that's not really true anymore that I have in my mind, but I feel like, you know, you hear about people in expressing intimidation about art, or I don't understand art, or mm-hmm. I don't know what this means, or they just avoid art. My and child. I feel like what you're saying is that, you know, they should really be willing to study and educate themselves that's, about it. That's what it's about, yeah. It's, it's like any art form in the past. If you don't understand Buddhist art or Chinese or Japanese art, really, what's it about? You know, you have to really study that to know what it's about. Or the Greeks or the Egyptians or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they go back to the Greeks and their search for the ideal. So it's your ideal body, the ideal uh, mind, the ideal architecture, and then an ideal political system, and that's where our democracy comes from. Mm-hmm. So, but you look at democracy, you ask anybody on the street now, where does it come from? They say, eh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Why is that? So it means having a look at it and understanding it. I'm also thinking about kind of the current age and like you were saying, how we've gone a lot more towards individualism. I feel like also with all the distractions that we have, people aren't as in tune with themselves. And it made me think of something that you had on your website. You were talking about how Van Gogh listened to his inner voice, found himself, and channeled his interests into different works of art, or coherent works of art. Mm-hmm and becoming aware of something to say or do and using the means most appropriate, like you said, to communicate that. Yeah, that's right. So it seems like there has to be some kind of, uh, I mean, it's like a deep exploration of yourself or kind of a tuning in to your interests or what you want to express yeah, to what figure you, out what, what you're you going to make. What you observe, you know. Sometimes it comes from some sort of nondescript observation and then it hits you like a bomb, you know, so, oh, okay, I'll use this. So sometimes it's very, very, very nebulous. <laughs> and you've had, I feel like you've had quite a few of those moments in your life, right, where you just oh, had yes. kind of a aha. Oh, yes, that aha moment, yes. And was that, do you think you were just open to that? You were looking for it? or? Well, as I was saying, I was trained by the Royal College of Art guys, very, very academically. I followed everything. Uh, when I left the art school, the, the head of the school said to me, Claude, don't worry about a style. You'll find a style. What the hell are you talking about? You yeah. know? I didn't even know there was different styles. Yeah, right. So I worked like that for years. And then I went to, uh, I started working in an abstract vein. I'd seen something. In the, and, you know, I did it with some abstract paintings and I went to Paris uh, on a sabbatical from high, teaching high school, and there I painted in the abstract vein, came back and worked in the abstract vein, and then taught at the art school in Johannesburg, mm-hmm. and also taught in the academic style for a while, and like everybody else there. And then I was given the uh, job of uh, designing an, an art in uh, the course in creative thinking. It, was, it wasn't that they, they called it the perceptual studies course. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I did my research in the library. I started, I thought uh, I'd like them to, uh, students to do their own thing, find themselves, mm-hmm. find, them, find a way to do this. So I went into the library and I checked the uh, creative thinking and there was a book there by uh, an American uh, guy who was what the, the uh, director or something of uh, one of the largest agencies. I forget his name at the moment. But uh, I went into the creative thinking and studied that and I thought, well, let's apply this sort of stuff to my, te- my students, my, my class. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I got each student to bring an object to class that they liked or disliked. Mm -hmm. And then we studied that for four or five months in all sorts of ways, different kinds of drawing, structural drawing, contour analysis, and then analyzing the the colors, 
doing sheets of color analysis from small little areas, you name it, um, making three-dimensional constructions of stuff. And then I told him, okay, now out of this lot, you have to find something you'd like to say about this object you have and interpret it in any way that you feel that necessary to communicate it. And man, the results were incredible. Mm. For first-year students, it was, I was bowled over by it. I have a video of that lot. Oh, yeah. So uh, they, they did this incredible stuff. So I looked at this and I said, well, what the hell's the matter with you? Apply the same thinking to yourself. Yeah. And that's where it started. Mm. Yeah, so that's where I, I, I was, it was sex for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, the first piece I made was, I, uh, I was thinking of doing a, a foam plastic construction with uh, movement in it. And I didn't know how to do it, but there was a, uh, South Africa, the, the kitchen sponges are about two inches thick, mm-hmm. uh, three, four inches wide. And I took a pencil and I put it into that uh, plastic, uh, the foam, Mm -hmm. and I moved it up and down, up and down, up and down, higher, lower, and all sorts of movements. Bingo. I had it. So then I went to a a couple of factories Mm -hmm. that produced this stuff in Johannesburg. And I saw them the way they cut these large cubes of... uh, plastic of, of uh, polyurethane foam mm-hmm. and uh, I got them to make me a large piece hollowed out inside and then I made the mechanics inside to take the, st- the, the steel rod and move that up and down in uh, you know asymmetric sort of movements mm-hmm. and that just took off and mm. uh, created a furor in Johannesburg and then I was seeing the way they cut stuff there, uh, I got them to cut me different colored foam and laminate them together. Uh, they were hollowed, mm-hmm. and I'd squash them into large uh, cubes, uh, plexiglass cubes, about eight feet in height and two, three feet wide. Uh, so all of that stuff was put together and showed at, at the Art South Africa today, mm-hmm. and I was given the first prize by uh, a, a curator from the Tate Museum in London. And then after that, that was 73, and in 75, a bunch of work was also sent to the Sao Paulo Biennale. And, uh, of the foam pieces. Those were the foam pieces, yeah. And, and to you, what was that work about? Like, what excited you initially about the little foam sponge and the pencil? and, and that, you know? that was the sexual movement. Okay. You know, the up and down and uh, movement, the sexual act. <laughs> yeah. And what about actually putting the the foam pieces in kind of like cages and things like uh, that? That came from my observations in the factory, seeing the way they sliced these these things up. Okay. And then uh, what I also did was the, uh, I took a cube that was made up of these stripes of plastic and then cut the, made one cut on one side, laid it down, did a horizontal cut, laid that at the end, so you get these little squares the long tube and mm-hmm. I did that on four sides so you had this thing out and you had this phallic shape in the middle so the furor was about the sexual nature of the work or uh, just the I, unconventionality I don't know of it? if they saw the sexual thing <laughs> okay. it, but it was just the unconventional thing of using uh, the polyurethane foam as a, as a sculptural technique you know yeah I'm wondering back, just back up a little bit to the, your first year when you tried that exercise with those students. Like, are there any, what kind of objects did they bring in? And are there any in particular, like from start to finish, that were really stand out for, for uh, you? Yeah, if, it's on my site. But anyway, the one that really stands out is uh, the student had an apple. Okay. And we did all sorts of analysis of that. And in the end, she came up with the idea of skin containing and core. 
Now, how does she do that? She took a balloon, filled it with water, took the bottom of the balloon, stuck it through the top, and tied a knot so you had that bottom coming up as mm -hmm. a core. Yeah. And they filled out. And uh, she made a few of those beautiful things. And then I said, okay, now you've discovered this, take it further, experiment with it, don't make apples necessary. So she took um, two or three balloons, put them inside each other uh, with water, and then twisted them, and the, twisted the center, and then tied it up. So you had these two buttock-like shapes mm -hmm. uh, on the sides of that. So mm. that was some of the work she did. And then, of course, uh, what happened was uh, some of those students from there developed incredibly. Mm. I'm so proud of them. Uh, one is Willem Bosov. He's uh, a leading South African artist today. He did uh, one of his most memorable pieces... He did a, a black marble wall, and on it, Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 years. Yeah. So what Willem did was he made hash marks on that, you know, like prisoners making yeah, their walls. Yeah. He made hash marks on that, and that is in the, the Constitutional Court in South Africa. Then he had a blind friend, and he made uh, 400 boxes. This guy is into dictionaries. He writes dictionaries, he reads dictionaries, he writes dictionaries of words that professors use and then professors don't use or whatever, mm -hmm. but are very difficult words. Then he made sculptures of each of these, interpreted them in sculptural form, mm -hmm. put them inside the box, and on top of the box... He wrote in Braille what there was in and, you know, a bit of a description of what, uh, what it meant. And the, the blind person could put their hand inside and feel it, mm. or the sighted person. Then the blind person would explain to the sighted person what uh, the piece was about. Oh, wow. So it's the reverse of what a sighted person would do to a blind person. Mm. So those are a couple of the pieces he's done. Man, something else. Amazing. Then uh, I have Joe Smale. The piece she did was a next to the stage in the hall. In the, the hall, there was a, a dressing room, and to get to the dressing room, there was a narrow passage. So she covered this whole thing with a white sheet, and then inside it. She made the whole room also in white sheets, and you would crawl through there to get inside. Mm -hmm. Now, what is that? That is the, the man's desire to return to the womb. Yeah. So, and she teaches at uh, Maryland Institute. She's been there for many years. And then another one was uh, Paul Stopforth. He did pieces related to the apartheid situation at that mm -hmm. stage. People waterboarded and people they threw people down the stairs and killed them, mm -hmm. uh, the you know, anti-apartheid fighters. Yeah. And uh, he made sculptures of those, something like George Siegel's type of plaster cast sculptures. Mm -hmm. uh, Fortunately, it was two blocks away from where the main police station was in South Africa. Mm. They were banning uh, writers and poets, but they weren't banning visual artists because very few people went to galleries. Uh -huh. But they, some people left the country. So uh, he, uh, he did those, and he teaches at, at the... Uh, he taught at Harvard University and then also at the uh, Boston Museum School. But I think he's retired now. All these guys are retiring, yeah. I think. And Trevor Gould up in uh, Canada teaches at Concordia University, and he's the guy uh, who did the life-size elephant and giraffes yeah. and stuff. And the elephant, of course, was placed at the bottom of the of the Alps where uh, Hannibal uh, ended up his tour through the, uh, through the Alps. Mm -hmm. So he had a life-size elephant there, and I saw this in the south of France, 
And on the back of this, he has a figure with uh, Mickey Mouse ears. And that is today still kept there in a special little hut. So those are some of the students. Yeah. But some of the others are still, you know, working and doing tremendous work in South Africa. I'm wondering what an artist that might be listening to this, how they could apply that exercise in their own way and their own practice, you know, in a, in a simple way. Uh, or maybe some of your other exercises, maybe that people could uh, be made aware of that they could maybe try for no, themselves. No, the, the exercise I have is within this construct of the times you live in, you know, that's what I'm about. I'm aware of the times we live in. And it's the philosophy and the zeitgeist of the times that generates the ideas of of, of uh, adventurous artists in their work. Mm-hmm. So uh, what I would say is, you know, have a look around, d- discover for yourself something that you've observed, something that you feel, something that you sense, something you've become aware of, whatever. And then research that further if you like, if you need to but find the most appropriate means to communicate that idea, no matter what. And in that way, you will break away from working in an accepted style. That's what I believe is the, is the basic the course. And you can look at the history of art, you know, you'll see that these were observations made by people or within the context of the times. They've discovered something in themselves, so... It was, say, the Impressionists. They were. They wanted to. They were influenced by the camera, um, the Industrial Revolution. Things were changing very quickly. So, what do we do? And uh, the photo, the photography came out. So the idea was: okay, I want to capture a moment in time, like the camera, and that's where they started using. Uh, quick brush strokes and bright colors because the academies were uh, had uh, classical paintings with browns and stuff and modeled beautifully you know mm-hmm. but they use brush strokes that are visible and that goes back to Rembrandt and all the way back to Titian but uh, they extended it even further and then Van Gogh comes along, or Van Gogh, that's the way it should be pronounced. Mm. Um, he comes along and he, he, he looks at himself, his feelings and so forth, and at the, the world around him, the way he observes it. And he uses some of the ideas of Impressionism and their bright colors and his uh, expressive brushstrokes. So they, the, his brushstrokes are not anymore... Uh, related to the visual, but to more of an emotional thing. But it's a mixture between the two. Mm-hmm. And by the way, his Starry Night, that where that swirling is, mm-hmm. there was an Irish uh, astronomer. He had the biggest telescope in the world. Uh, I forget his name at the moment. But uh, he was the first to... Uh, photograph a spiral nebula and that was shown in France and it was in the library also of where Van Gogh was in in the asylum and that's where he sought and he applied that same thing to the uh, to his painting of the starry night Mm -hmm. wow (laughs) that's yeah that's a really interesting story that one I'm wondering, though, when you say, like, by any means necessary to kind of express yourself, mm-hmm. I mean, I just think of, like, a lot of people, I mean, it sounds, I don't know if it sounds easy, but I mean, I, I imagine for generations, artists have been running up against an idea like that, but then there's a lot of fear, you know, it's like any means necessary. It's like, you know, when you think of, like, no limits or finding your edge, I mean, there's fear there. Like, how do you deal with that fear or hesitation or doubt? I have my fears too, but uh, starting off with this stuff, you know, there's one that's a failure. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) And uh, so you have failures along the way. But it means experimenting, thinking about it, and uh, maybe doing research into it. Uh, until you and then you just experiment until you find 
the most appropriate means and, and how to use those means to communicate your idea. So Yeah, but are you then, I mean, are there times where you kind of think about in your life where you've kind of hit maybe where you thought you had a limit on what you could do or and then you broke through that? Oh, yeah, you know, um, but uh, for me at the moment actually is, you know, you you look at these paintings behind you with the burnt, there's charcoal written the names of the different places mm-hmm. where there were fires. And then I took a creme brulee torch. Now, I, I didn't know, I wanted to use a flame, but I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I mentioned this to some friends. And I said, oh. Somebody said, use a creme brulee torch. I said, wow, that's it. Yeah. So now then I started using. So it also helps to talk to people about your ideas, and they, th- that helps sometimes. So that's where the creme brulee torch comes from. Mm-hmm. So that led to that. Then um, the floods uh, where I found that I used charcoal, and sprayed it with water so that the paint would run down. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I started adding uh, a detritus and stuff, twigs and so forth from different sites here in Austin, like Shoal Creek, mm-hmm. uh, twigs and things, and sticking them down with a thick acrylic paint. And then uh, I, I had a, uh, the Sandy. There was a, uh, I had a friend there. And I got him to bring me dirt from about four or six places. I soaked the the paper in water, in salt water, for two days. I would have liked to have used sea salt, sea water, but I used sea salt Mm -hmm. uh, to put in the water. Uh, There's no sea water here. So I soaked it there for two days. Uh, the paper, and then took my hand with a full of dirt and wrote Sandy, Sandy, Sandy on three layers of the paint, or two layers, and uh, of, the, of the watercolor paper. And then I took a stone from there, and I wrote the different places where they happened, South Ferry, Wall Street, etc. wrote those with the, with the stone, so the paper was torn much like the burnt pieces. Mm-hmm. So to show destruction. Yeah, what is your fascination or interest in disaster or the power of nature? It, anyway? it is my concern about the environment. Okay, I'm highly concerned about the environment and the political situations, you know, around. So the, this tower that I have and the, the mirrored pieces... Uh, on some of them I had images from the news Mm -hmm. and then uh, projected the video directly from the uh, TV screen onto Mm -hmm. that projections and the other one was just mirrors and the whole room was full of hanging mirrors and of course just hanging they would be turning and there were four uh, four projectors that were attached to four different channels live projected onto these mirrors and they were turning around it was almost impossible to stay in there for longer than three minutes yeah it just drove you crazy yeah yeah but anyway and that was at collab all this stuff was at collab mm-hmm. so by doing these works about the environment about these disasters like what are you hoping that the viewer will I hope the viewer, that. you know, the viewer will start thinking about the environment and political situations and thinking about that. That's what I hope would happen. Yeah. But who knows? If you want people to think about those things, then yeah. is it about something that they could change in their life or oh, do yeah. differently? Change, change the attitude towards nature. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. That's what it's about. It's uh, because the fires, a lot of them are man-made. Yes. And then uh, the uh, hurricanes and stuff, that's also climate change. 
And you're working on pieces, or you have worked on pieces about war and extinction also. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So what is, the, what is the role of writing in your work? Like, why writing words? It's, it relates to where the area where these things happened. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it's about, uh, specific areas. But as far as like just the, the act of the writing the word or choosing mm-hmm. words as a way to kind of communicate? Yeah, and that is uh, in, the, in the titles of the work displayed. Mm-hmm. I say it's, it's the title of the work is Fires from uh, whatever the area is in, in, in California yeah. or like those in the, uh, the Sandy from mm-hmm. specific areas. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an attempt to get people to think mm-hmm. about uh, the environment we live in and try to do something about it. And when you're actually writing out these words or these names, is there is it kind of a meditative process? Is there kind yeah. of something about the gesture? It's the, the gesture and meditation as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Now, that has quite a bit to do with it, yeah. I mean, you have to care quite a bit about these issues to spend probably hundreds of hours and potentially wearing out your arm or... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they don't take hundreds of hours, these, though, fortunately. Okay. Yeah. But this all started, you know, uh, from the foam plastic pieces I were doing in South Africa. Oh, okay. When I came here, I studied, went to do my master's degree at Pratt. I was in Pearl Paint, which is the biggest paint store in New York, Mm -hmm. it was. And I saw about... uh, Ten different or eight, six different manufacturers' paints, and the idea came to me then. That's an observation again. That okay, what if I took say the cobalt blue from Windsor and Newton and Talens and you know all these different mm-hmm. companies, and put them next to each other, and what would they would they be the same or would they be slightly different? Then the idea came. Okay. What would happen to a color if I used the same color for a thousand years, or a hundred years, thousand years? What, how would it change? That color would change in time. Mm-hmm. So you'd have the one at the beginning of the thousand years to compare to the one at the end from the same company, if possible, if a company would last a thousand yeah, right. years. But anyway, that was the idea. So that's where the thousand years and the 100-year paintings came from. And then out of that grew the uh, the idea for these, you know, time, change, climate, political situations, you name it. It is interesting that you're doing these works that take years or, you know, generations of people into the future to mm-hmm. complete. Yeah, that, that also has to do with it linking linking generations. Yeah, just, I, I guess I don't see that a lot in other artists work where there's a consideration of just such a huge span of time. I feel yeah. like it's more of a moment. Yeah. I do this piece and it's done and it goes yeah. on the wall, but yeah. this is, yeah, well, that's where it came from, you know, that first experience in pearl paint. So that's where all of this stuff originated really. And what do you think it'll actually be like in a thousand years? Do you ever think about that? Yeah. Well, even some of the colors now in those thousand year paintings, especially some of the, the lemon yellows have changed, and some of the whites have changed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's changed within, say, 30 years. So give it a thousand years, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, what do you think the world will be like in a thousand years? Oh, man, yeah. Is it depressing? <laughs> it's depressing, yeah, yeah, I think. If it keeps on going like it is. Mm-hmm. You don't feel any optimism about the future or want to see it? Um, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I wouldn't mind seeing the, the future. I was listening to the radio this morning about Ireland. Uh, is it Ireland and Scotland or one of those, two of those countries? Mm-hmm. Uh, banning plastic bags. So there is some hope. <laughs> yeah, and straws. Though. You have to use paper straws now. Yeah. So there is some hope, you know, that if people would wake up and see what's happening to this little world we live in. I wonder what your thoughts are just about getting older. 
<laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. That's all right. Because I, I feel like, personally, I just feel like I probably take for granted the fact that I'm 43 and I can do all mm-hmm. the things I can do. And yeah. you probably wish that you could be 43 oh, again. Yeah, I wish I could do everything I did, yeah. And me, at the moment, I have uh, chronic fatigue. Mm. So in painting outside there, you know, on the porch... I can only make about 15 minutes at a time, then I have to go and lie down or do something else. But it's really, really difficult. I'm struggling like hell to work, and I can't stand it. Do you have any advice for anyone that might be young and take it, taking that for granted? Uh, yeah, live your life to the very minute, the fullest to the very minute. Don't waste your time on junk stuff. Yeah. Do you feel like you did that? No, I feel that I, I, I had a very full life, you know. As a kid at school, I, yeah, I wasn't the brightest student, but uh, I played tennis a lot, mm. a hell of a lot. Oh, I didn't <laughs> and know that. And my schoolwork suffered because of that. And I took art lessons and music lessons, so I spent time doing that. Mm-hmm. So my schoolwork was eh. But I managed to pass my matric, so it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, so my advice is just live for life to the fullest. Do you have any reflections on just pretty much having been an artist your whole life, like the life of an artist? Oh, no, I've loved it. I've enjoyed it. It's just been a wonderful life. I really, you know, can't complain about that. And I've been very lucky, you know, having uh, awards and stuff like that. So, you know, like, I yeah. was awarded the uh, Austin Critics Circle Award for Solo Show of the Year. Mm-hmm. The solo show I had last year at Colab. It was like a retrospective. Right? It was a retrospective, yeah, yeah. So that worked out very well. So you know, I've had my awards. I've had mu- work in museums in South Africa, Johannesburg Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. And then also other art galleries, Durban and, you know, places over there. And I have one piece here in the in the Blanton. You know, that's something. <laughs> yeah. No, congratulations. That's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was lucky. I was, uh, my mother was a single, um, you know, a single woman. And uh, we were sent to a convent, my brother and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, 400 miles away from home, by the way. And it was there as a little boy I started working. And I remember, as far as I can remember, one of the first pieces I did was a sacred heart. It was a convent. I'm not Catholic, but with dripping blood in a chalice. Mm. (laughs) Wow. And uh, I think my mother uh, wanted to sort of get me out of being under the influence of Catholicism. So we were Methodist, and she sent me to the local minister and he gave me art lessons <laughs> okay and i remember painting an elephant there mm-hmm. a gray elephant that's where it started and then uh, going to high school the the fortunately the boarding school i was in had uh, had original south african artists leading south african artists mm-hmm. very very good ones paintings in the library and our classrooms were full of reproductions of landscapes. So I started doing landscapes. And I actually, uh, one of my teachers came to me. He says, I want that tree in the corner there of the field. I would like a painting of that. And he bought it off of me in my first sale. Nice. And I took art lessons at the convent there. There was a convent close by to the school. And I took art lessons there for a while. Then we moved to my small town. My mother bought a little house and we moved there. It's a town called Vereniging, which is the uh, Pittsburgh of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I started taking lessons at the local technical college with a woman who was trained in the old uh, watercolor tradition. And she taught me, and I started for matric. This I, I wanted to take art, mm-hmm. but there wasn't art in the school. I wanted that for my final exam. So in the bookkeeping class, I told the teacher, old bull tutor, we called him, uh, that I wanted to do art. He says, yeah, wow, that's great. But the, the headmaster didn't want me to do it. Mm. So, But he said, what are you going to do? I said, I have to study history of art. He said, bring your book here. Yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, I studied my history of art and I managed to pass. And then I went to the art school in Johannesburg for four years where we were trained by the Royal College of Art guys. Mm-hmm. So my advice is, would be to, for young artists is to work as hard as you can on your work and get interested Oh yeah, and my mother, um, when I was at the at the high school in in, in Vereniging in the hometown, I bought a book. She bought a book for me, uh, Andrew Loomis's "It's Fun to Draw," hmm. and that was figure drawing. So use anything you can, uh, get hold of anything you can, uh, to learn at a young age, and uh, study that and work at it. You have to work at it a lot. That's the advice I can give, just to, to research, to do your work, and, and get as much knowledge as you can from as many people as you can. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Yeah. So in the end, do you think that as far as when people look at art, it's about what moves them, what they like, without having to do a lot of research, or is it... Or is it enhanced by the research and the education? Uh, yeah, especially work that you you know you don't like. But even work that you like, it helps to research it. Why do I like it? What is this artist about? You know, a lot of it just because it looks nice. Yeah. You like it, but uh, it means finding out. So you can talk to the artist, or you can read their blog, their, you know, their artist Statement, statements yeah. mm-hmm. you can look at uh, newspaper write-ups about or articles in magazines so that you get to know the artist If you, but that's if you're really interested very few people are that interested in it I think mm-hmm. do you have a certain approach that you take to viewing new art is it just all intuitive or do you kind of go through a mental checklist oh no I checklist? go through a mental checklist oh yeah oh yeah definitely can you share that or, any, or elaborate on that no, let's see. No, I, I check it out and uh, think about it, and I read the artist's statement. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in museums or galleries, they have a little statement next to it, and I have a look at that as well. So, and looking at strange work in books and magazines, you know, I like to go in and read about work I don't know. So it makes you think. Now, I, I mentioned Tracy Ehrman and the bed. Now, in a way, it came to me that uh, that is a self-portrait. It's not a painting of herself, but it's a telling about her life. Yeah. And if you look at a self-portrait, and if it's a well-done one, you can look at it and sort of read into it sometimes, you know, or a portrait of anybody, and uh, the expressions and so forth. You, you can start sort of seeing what's behind them and their minds and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then it also helps if it's a character, uh, you know, some person, and you're interested in it, then go and have a look at the history of that person, where they come from, what they did in the past. So uh, it means looking at, studying a bit about it if you're interested enough. So, uh, so you put in the work to figure it out. Yes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, yeah, oh yes. I'm just wondering then, as far as people getting to know themselves or finding their passions or finding their style, what would what would your advice be? To find their style? Yeah, because I know that in your book, you talk about it's not exactly finding your style. It's No, you're not looking for a style. Once you start looking for a style, as far as I'm concerned, you're lost. Mm-hmm. The style comes out of your process of uh, finding something to say and finding the means to communicate the idea. So uh, it, it happens because of that process. And that's exactly what happened to, say, Cubism, for that matter, you know. I don't think uh, Picasso or Brock were looking for a style. They were uh, applying sort of ideas and th- thinking about painting objects from different points of view at different moments of time in time. On the, on the same surface. So that's where you get this eyes and noses in the wrong places, the wrong places, as you know, right. we would call. And that came about because of that 
that idea, you know. So they were, and then Cubism turned into a style eventually, you know, for a lot of people. That would be the adventurous part of it? Yeah, oh yeah. It's, you know, other artists would uh, later on copy the surface, you know, and they would, say, put noses and eyes in the wrong places without fully understanding where it came from and why. So it's, it's knowing why, and, uh, yep, that's, that's about it. What are you working on now, and what do you see into the future as far as your work goes, or what are you hoping to accomplish? Um, yeah, I, the future, well, at the moment I'm working on a piece of glaciers, the melting of the glaciers, and uh, it's matted, it's an, an acrylic, and I'm having the sea pour over the mat, and then I want it to pour onto the edge of the frame, mm-hmm. and even the front of the frame, so that you have this water pouring down and spreading all over the world. So I'm having great difficulty painting the realistically the, the, the glacier, you know, it's, it's, it's so much very fine work in mm-hmm. there. But uh, it's coming along. Now, the future, it just means finding something else to have observed or feel about, and then using, as as in this case, the new piece, the most appropriate means to communicating that idea. So that's what it's about. What the future exactly holds, I don't know. And uh, I don't care if it's going to happen. But at the age of 87... (laughs) I have to think about that one. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say? I think that's it. Anyway, just to thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you, Claude. I appreciate your time. Oh, you're most welcome. I really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.